couple of prayer requests today that I just thought I would slide under the door here this morning. I think it's um, that I would like to draw your attention to it. First of all, our, the former president of the Evangelical Free Church, his name is Bill Hamill. Um, I don't know if you've had the privilege of meeting him or not. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, we had Kevin Compline here a few weeks ago, who was the current president of the Free Church. Uh, Bill Hamill was his predecessor. And um, anyway, Bill has stage four cancer, and um, the prognosis is not very good as we stand here today. So I just read his Caring Bridge last night, and, and even in the last few days, it's taken a, a turn for not a good direction. So I think it'd be good um, for us as an evangelical free church to come alongside our brother, Bill Hamill, and pray for him this morning. Um, don't mean to throw cold water on everything this morning, but uh, I, I, I just think it's something that we need to be praying about, and that is our, we contract with a gentleman by the name of Randy Coleman here for cleaning services during the week, and uh, you might have heard of his prayer request recently. His wife has also been diagnosed with uh, very advanced stage cancer, and I was able to speak with him on Friday morning and get an update, and... Um, there's just a lot of prayer points inside of that equation. And she's undergoing chemotherapy right now that, that will end around the 1st of September. And then they'll wait a few weeks and if the tumor hasn't stayed the same or shrunk, then, um, then they are not able to do surgery. So we're praying that the tumor, at least from cancer, the chemo stays the same or shrinks, then they can go in and remove it. If they can't, if that hasn't happened, then the, the next step is to go home. So um, I asked Randy if we could pray for him and his wife Angie and their family. They have two daughters, both of them getting married within a few weeks this summer, so they're grateful for that, that joy in the middle of all of this. And, uh, but I, I, I asked him if we could pray for him and if I could communicate that with you, and he was very glad to hear that others were praying for them. So let's do that this morning, would we? Father, we just heard the words of Psalm 46. And the psalmist proclaims, you are our refuge. You are the Lord of hosts. You are over all things. And as we see this morning, as we will see this morning in your word, that you are the one who calms the seas. You're the one that calms the storm. You're the one that calls out to even, even the wind and the waves, and they are still. You indeed are the Lord of hosts. You're also... Um, the Lord of heaven and our Redeemer who has invited us to come into your throne room. As you reign over all of creation, come into your throne room and bring our requests, our needs before you. And so we do that this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray specifically for Bill Hamill as he, as he um, heads into a, a storm with cancer that uh, we can't, can't comprehend. Um, we pray first of all for his healing. We know that you are... Lord, you have authority over sickness, you have authority over healing, and we bring him to you for that reason, for your healing touch. We also ask you, Lord Jesus, to calm his heart and to fill him. You said that your grace would be sufficient for us, and we ask you, Lord Jesus, to make that promise become vivid and real to, to Bill and to his family these days. We also pray the same for Randy and for his wife, Angie, who is who is working her way through chemotherapy. And Lord Jesus, we, Randy, Randy is part of our church family as, our, as, as on staff for, for cleaning. And, and uh, he's, we, we uh, 
praise you for him and his services here. But Lord Jesus, we ask you on, on his behalf and on Angie's behalf, we ask you, Lord, Lord, who has authority over sickness, Lord, who can bring healing, Lord, would you come into their life and, 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 and work your healing power. Lord Jesus, we pray specifically that that tumor would, be, would, would at least stay the same, if not shrink and show them signs of hope and progress in this. Whatever you choose to do, Lord Jesus, we, we will praise you and we will come alongside these two families, Lord Jesus, and we will seek your face, seek your grace, and seek your strength during these days. So we ask that for these two families, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself strong to them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. We will continue our Shoreline Lessons series this morning. We have one more message next week in this series. We've been, we've been stopping around the whole Sea of Galilee and taking in some of the, the scenes. And... Um, if you're, if you're visiting here this morning, one of the reasons we're doing this series around the Sea of Galilee, the ministry of Jesus, is because a group of us were in Israel a couple months ago, and we were able to be in these places. So we're, we're just taking some time to camp on these events. Matthew chapter 8, I'll start at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now I imagine... I imagine that most of us have a boating story in our own lives, right? We're from Minnesota, land of, what, what's the number up to now? 16,000 lakes, something like that? Say it again. Oh, okay. 11,842. And I, anybody else who would have said that, I would have said, you just made that up, but it's Ron Schmidt, and I know he didn't make that up. He's a walking encyclopedia. Okay, but we all have our own boating stories to tell. Uh, boating stories where the conditions are such that you felt as if you were in serious peril, afraid of your life. Has that ever happened to any of you? It's always been calm water, right? No? Nah, okay. Let me tell you my story. I've got a couple stories myself. But one that often comes to my mind, the, the first one that comes to my mind is, is back in the days when I was growing up at my grandparents' resort on Detroit Lake. Uh, Detroit Lakes is up in the northwest part of the state. I was, I don't know how old I was. I was a young boy, maybe even preteen, I'm not sure. It was a beautiful day for fishing. So my grandpa decided that today was the day. We're going to go out fishing. We're going to give up all the re resort responsibilities. We're going to take the pontoon out. We're going to go fishing. So a family friend and his son were there. And so my grandpa and I and, and these other two guys hopped on the pontoon. Now this now, you've got to remember, this is back in the early 70s, late 60s. Pontoons were not like they are today. The pontoon was just a flat deck, and you put your lawn chairs on there and everything else, right? And so we loaded up the pontoon, and we headed out. We, and if you, if you know Detroit Lake at all, there's a big Detroit and a little Detroit. 
Big Detroit is huge. I don't know how far across it is. It's at least a couple miles, maybe more across. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a huge, huge lake. So it took us a long time to get out to Grandpa's favorite spot out in the middle of Big Detroit Lake. Probably at least a two-mile drive out there, okay? But a pontoon boat with a 12-horsepower with a Evinrude on the back, it's going to take you a while to get there. So the lake was calm. It was, it was serene. The lake, it was one of those beautiful mornings. The lake was just like glass. The sun was shining, and the sunfish were biting. We were filling up the basket full of sunfish. We were having a blast out there. So that one dark cloud that was appearing in the horizon didn't bother us at all. Didn't seem like a big deal to us, and so we just kept right on fish, fishing. And then suddenly, and I like the way Matthew puts it here, and behold, there arose a great storm. That's what happened on Big Detroit Lake that day. Behold, there was a great storm. And the lake was, I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. Now, you understand, I'm, I'm a little kid, so this is probably bigger than what it really was. But it was huge. The lake was instantly transformed into a churning cauldron of white-capped waves. Angry waves. So in a panic, Grandpa pulled up the anchor, and we tried to point the small pontoon boat into the waves and into the wind to try to keep it from capsizing us. The waves were huge. And our little motor, our little Avenue motor, had nothing to say against the force of the, winds and the, uh, the wind and the waves. The waves were so big that they crashed over the front of the pontoon boat, and uh, most of our fishing gear, and I don't know, maybe some of our lawn chairs even were swept overboard. It was a serious storm. What strikes me, what I remember about that day is that the pontoon heading into those huge waves started to act like a submarine. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but the, the, the boat would, would be going up and down like this and the front would catch a wave and would actually go straight down in the water and the motor on the back of the boat would come out of the water. Okay, this is a bad storm. And, the, and it would get down so far and then the pontoon, the, the buoyancy would pop it back out of the water and we'd go all through it again and it would, it would submarine down. I've never experienced anything like it since. It was really something. I can still picture my grandpa trying unsuccessfully to keep command of our helpless vessel. We were over two miles from shore and it seemed like there was no hope of rescue. That's the vivid, vivid, vivid memory that I have of a serious storm coming up just like that on a lake. When we were in Israel, we, came, we, we, we were, spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. We spent some time on the Sea of Galilee. We took a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. And you probably know this, but we were reminded when we were there that the, the topography is, is such that storms can come up in an instant, just like they did for me when I was a kid. They come up in an instant, and they are ferocious storms. Um, I have some pictures of the Sea of Galilee. This is, this is our, our hotel room in Tiberias looking out on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was absolutely gorgeous. You see, what, what the Bible calls the other side is in, is in the horizon back there. That's the Golan Heights. And uh, so next slide, please. So this is us on our boat. We're headed out. That's Tiberias, the city of Tiberias in the background. This is the Sea of Galilee on a nice beautiful day. Go ahead. I did not take this picture. I stole it. But this is a, a picture, a larger picture of the Sea of Galilee and how calm it is and how beautiful it is. 
again, calm and beautiful. Next slide, please. This, this is the boat, that, not that boat, but one of these boats that we were on, and that's one of the days that we were around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you can see when it's calm, it is absolutely beautiful. Go ahead. This is our group on the boat. If I remember right, there was some dancing going on in the boat. The tour guides got us, started singing songs, and everybody started dancing a Jewish dance around the boat. It was great fun. Go ahead. Then we came to another a museum on the Sea of Galilee, and this is an actual boat that they believe is from the time of Jesus, a fishing boat that was uh, probably the one that we're talking about, a, a type of the one we're talking about in, in Matthew chapter 8. I don't, can somebody help me remember, was it 15 feet long? Something like that? And so I imagine if it's built up, that's the fishing boat. And imagine a simple sail on that boat, and that's, that's what you have. That's where the disciples were on that, on that night, uh, that day when the sea started churning. So one minute on the Sea of Galilee, you're moving along, and everything is wonderful, just like the picture showed here. Everything is wonderful. You're unhindered by the weather. And the next minute, the very next minute, that's how fast the storms come up on the Sea of Galilee, you are terrified for your life. I understand the Sea of Galilee can be a storm-tossed, can be storm-tossed without warning. It can create violent and churning waves. So as, the, as, as we just read in Matthew chapter 8, that's what happened to the disciples and to Jesus. Most translations describe it as, Behold, there arose a great storm. My ESV, that's what, that's what we have here. Behold, there arose a great storm. That means, and what happened? A storm came up, just like that. That's how you say that. But in the NIV, it says, Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. I kind of like the way the NIV says it. Suddenly, I want you to catch the surprise in that. That boat was rocking. The waves were crashing over the boat, and the Gospels tells us that it seemed as if the boat was going to swamp. It was going to tip over. It was filling with water, and it was, out, it was about to be overcome by the raging sea. So fear, even terror, marked the moment. Now these disciples were seasoned fishermen. They were professionals. They were quite familiar with the Sea of Galilee. So when we read in Matthew chapter 8 that they were afraid, that they were terrified, that tells me this is a storm like no other. This is what we would call the perfect storm. These guys were terrified. They, were, they are not afraid of the water. They're not afraid of the sea. They know how to handle it. But this storm was awesome. Their assessment in this situation was that all was about to be lost. Now this scene makes for a great story. I can feel the fear of the disciples and you can sense the unrelenting power of the storm and the wind and the waves as, the, as Matthew describes it. But we have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of this story in Matthew's narrative? Matthew, like the other gospel writers, all three of the synoptic gospels have this story in them. Why, out of all the events that Jesus was involved with, and you know, John, John even said that if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, the, 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 we, we couldn't write enough books for it, right? So Matthew and the other gospel writers had to choose what they were going to portray about Jesus so they could help us to understand who Jesus is. Why did he choose this particular story? What's he trying to tell us about it? 
So let's look at it. Let's take it apart. Let's look at Jesus, first of all, the view from the stern. Let's look at this, what was Jesus doing? So as Matthew described the storm, in the very same breath, and I don't know if he caught this or not, he says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, comma, but he was asleep. I don't want you to miss that emphasis there. He's underlining that. He's saying, everything is lost. Everything is in peril. Everything is tossing and turning. This boat, it's 15 feet long in huge, huge waves. They're crashing over the boat. The boat's about to sink. And, and Matthew says, yeah, and he was sleeping. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. If you read the Gospel of Mark and this, this, this uh, version of the story, Mark said this, that the disciples not only went to Jesus and pleaded for their lives, pleaded for their safety, but they also challenged us. What, what did they challenge Jesus? What did they say? Jesus, don't you care about us? And isn't that, you know, we know the whole story of the Gospel. We know, we know the story from beginning to end. We have all the Gospels. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know all the things that worked out in the Gospel. We know all the stories. We know it all. We know how it all comes together. But the disciples didn't know that. And they said, Jesus, don't you care? And I'm amazed at all, all that we know about the Gospels, how we know the complete story. We have the complete revelation of God right here. And isn't that true that it's the same default for us? When God goes quiet, when the storm is raging, and I don't know what's happening, and God doesn't seem to be moving, my first default is to say what? God, don't you care? And that's what the disciples are doing right there in that moment. He wasn't acting the way they thought he should. And yet, the fact that they woke him up makes me, makes me understand that they knew that he had something to say about it. I don't believe that at that moment, because they didn't, remember at the end of, this, at the, end of the narrative, he said, they, I, I can't talk. The disciples said, who is this man? I don't believe they understood that he had the authority over the wind and the waves. I don't believe that he did, that they understood that. But I believe that they understood from the other miracles that they had just seen, they understood that he had something to say about it. Something to say about it. So the response of Jesus, Jesus said, verse 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He challenged them. Now remember, the waves are still crashing over the boat. The boat is still rocking back and forth. The boat is maybe pontooning like my, my story of when I was a young kid. Maybe it's doing all of that stuff. That's all going on. And Jesus says, where's your faith? Why can't you relax? That sounds a little crazy to me. But there it is. Jesus is, is going deeper than the, the circumstances which he's always calling us to do. Where's your faith? Why don't you just put your faith in me? I have authority. And I ask myself, so why could Jesus sleep? If all of this is going on, this boat was, is probably feeling like, like it's, it's going to come apart, why could Jesus sleep? Why did he respond with his focus on their faith? If you turn with me over to John chapter 13. 
This is John's version of the Last Supper. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, that, that John just takes, takes away the fact that God is disinterested or not, not caring. So he answers that question. Go down to verse 3. Now if, you're, if you know John's gospel, you know that... <coughs> In his version of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. He got down on his, on his knees and he washed their feet, taking the form of a servant. How could he do that? How could he do that? Listen to this, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel and he goes on to wash the disciples' feet. But I want you to catch that. Why could Jesus sleep in the stern of the boat? Why, why was he asleep on a cushion, as Mark says? He was, a, he was asleep in the boat. Why could he do it? Listen to verse 3 again. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had authority over all things. And that he had come from God. He knew what his identity was. He knew what his calling was. And he knew he was going back to God. In other words, he knew that his life was all in the hands of the Father. He had complete trust in it. And no storm on the Sea of Galilee was going to break that trust. And so he understood he had authority, he had calling, he had his identity as the Messiah, as the sent one. And yes, he's God. But I want us to catch this. I think we need to understand what our identity is in the midst of the storms. We need to understand what our calling is. We need to know that we are safe and secure in the hands of the Father. No one will pluck us out of the Father's hand. Not a storm, not any circumstance. That's why Jesus could sleep in the stern of the boat. It wasn't just that he was tired. He was probably exhausted. But it wasn't just that. He could make it through the storm because he knew that the Father was watching over him. <clears throat> it, it reminds me of the expression, I am immortal until God has finished his plan for me. Everything that God intends for my life, everything that God intends to do in me and through me will all be worked out. When Paul wrote his letters to the Thessalonians, he, he said, God, who, who promised you, will work it out, will continue to work it through. I am immortal until God's plan is finished in me. That's why Jesus could sleep in the stern of the boat. So his question to the disciples was simply a challenge. It was even an invitation to come into that kind of faith, to come into that kind of confidence in the watch, care, and the sovereignty of the Father. Will you come? Will you come and take rest in me, even in the midst of the storm? And so, to back up his teaching, to back up his thought and his principle here that we can take rest in the Father, take rest in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has authority over all things, he simply stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Peace be still. And everything went glassy calm. Just like that. In a moment. In a moment. So let's look at the apostles, or the disciples. Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The, seas, the sea was churning, and the sea came to a complete calm in an instant. 
just like that, from violent winds to nary a whisper, from churning waves to a dead calm, the violently tossed boat now sat motionless in the water, all in, the, in a flash of a moment. Now the Gospels don't record any further conversation between Jesus and the disciples. I wonder, did Jesus simply go back to the, to the, to the back of the boat, pull up his cushion and, and go back to sleep? Is that what happened? That's kind of the impression that we're left with. There, was, there wasn't a, a, a further on conversation going on. We do know that the disciples were dumbfounded. The disciples were speechless. As Jesus curled up on the cushion to sleep, they stood looking at one another, and I wonder if they whispered to one another, if they just, they just stood there, who is this guy? Who is this guy that even the winds and the wave, even the sea obeys him? What's happening here? That question goes to the heart of the situation, and I think it's why the gospel writers included it in their narratives of Jesus' ministry. It's the, it's, it's the question that each disciple had to resolve. Who is this man who has such authority? Every disciple had to resolve that question. And it's a question that each of us has to resolve as well. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now because we have the whole of Scripture to fill in the blanks, we might find it easy to conclude that, of course, Jesus has authority over nature. But for the disciples in the Jewish culture, having a, a man having authority over nature is just simply not an option. In fact, authority over nature was reserved for God himself. You see, that's the problem they're facing here. This man has authority over nature, and we understand that only God has authority over nature. No mere man could ever have or exercise such authority. And in the, in the Greek culture of the day, this kind of authority was reserved only for the gods or their deities. So the disciples' experience with the wind and the waves would take them to under, and understand that they never anticipated that day when they got in the boat that Jesus is God. And together with all the other miracles that they had seen, this miracle of nature would bring them to a moment of clarity, a moment where they wrestled with the true identity of Jesus, and they came to a moment where, later on where they would see Jesus for who he is. So as I, as I look at the disciples, I wonder, what did they know? What, was the, what were the filters that they looked through as they looked at Jesus in that moment? Now, we think of the disciples as being uneducated men, but they were Jewish men, most of them, and they understood the scriptures. Okay? They understood. They, they were raised in such a way that they knew the scriptures. And I'm asking myself, Okay, in that moment, in that moment when they're wondering who this man is, how would they know how to evaluate this situation? What would they know from Scripture? How would they view the beauty and the power of nature? How would they understand that? And how would they see God's interaction with nature? How would they see God through nature? How, would, how did they frame God in all of this? Let's look, at, let's look at just five things that I think Scripture shows us about nature and God. And I think you'll find this interesting. First of all, they would have known that God is the creator. They would have known from the Jewish scriptures, from Genesis chapter 1 and on, they would have known that God created everything in six days. They would have known that God was the one who spoke a word and everything came into being. The sun, the moon, the stars, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, everything. 
And finally, the crowning achievement of all of creation was, was man himself, man and woman. They would have simply understood that. That would have been a filter just fixed in place for them. And I wonder, who hasn't laid under a starlit night, looked at the stars, and wondered who God is? Wondered about the beauty and the splendor of God? Who hasn't looked out on the mountains or, or even the beautiful fields that we see around us? Who hasn't seen the awe and the splendor of nature and said, isn't God something? I saw a, a documentary recently. It was about the Himalayan mountains. And um, just for one little spot inside of this documentary, they talked about the Himalayan jumping spider. Have you ever heard of that before? Did you see the documentary? Himalayan, it's got like five or eight eyes, circles all the way around its head. And it's, it's tiny. It's, it's less than three-sixteenths of an inch total. It's tiny. It lives over 10,000 feet, from 10,000 to 15,000 feet up in the air, it lives. And it's, it's tiny. It'll, you could fit t five of them on your thumbnail. How do they live up there? There's no food up there. They live on, on insects that are caught out of control in the wind and get blown up that high. And they live on those insects. God feeds them. There's nothing up there to eat. They jump. I don't remember what it said about how high they can jump, but they can jump like 30 times their height or something like that. It's truly amazing. Here's this little tiny creature that nobody ever gets to see, and yet God wraps all of his creativity into that. And you multiply that across the, the whole, whole of creation, from giraffes to hippopotamuses to, to uh, woodpeckers. To, you just fill in the blank. And, and that's not even including the creation and the mountains and the ocean and, and all the beauty and the splendor that God has created. Who doesn't stand back and say, look at who God is? Psalm 19 says, day to day pours forth speech and goes on to describe all of creation that is in a, in a, in a megaphone, in a, in a, in a, through a huge sound system is blaring out. All the creation is blaring out. This is who God is. Romans 1 talks about natural revelation and says if you, we have no excuse because we've seen what he has created and we know that there is a God. They would have known that, God as creator. That's the first thing they would have known. They would have known God as redeemer. The story of Exodus is woven into the fabric of the Jewish religion. It should be woven into the fabric of our faith as well. It's a story of redemption and how God sent Moses and sent him to Pharaoh and said, let my people go out of slavery. Remember, God said, I have seen my people. I have seen their suffering. And I will redeem them. I will bring them out of the land. And you know the story. God sent ten plagues to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wouldn't listen. God, God sent ten plagues. You remember the plagues? He turned the Nile into blood. Frogs, locusts, gnats, flies, cattle, the cattle that were full of disease, boils and sores on men's and men and animals. He destroyed their crops with hail. He brought a sense of deep, dense darkness over the land. And finally, he brought death of the firstborn. God used nature to, to yell out to Pharaoh, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord. I am the creator. And I'm the one who's speaking through Moses. God used nature to do that. So the disciples would have understood that through nature, and that's not even to mention that the, God parted the Red Sea, God fed them with, with, with food and water out in the desert. God did all those things through nature to draw attention to himself. 
God, the disciples would have known in that day the, God who, the, the man who just stilled the waves in the sea is the same one who brought us out of brought brought the exodus about who brought us out of Egypt that's the that's the stuff that they were wrestling with you see God as redeemer in Egypt in 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 nature they would have seen God as sovereign they would see life they would see all of the suffering that is going on in the world through the lens of Job and God's explanation of creation turn with me to Job chapter 38 let's just this this is just I know you're familiar with it but let's just Take a look at it. Job chapter 38. You remember the story? Job is, has, been, has suffered incredibly. The, the story of Job's suffering and what Satan just came and took everything away from him. And the whole, whole book of Job is him trying to understand and he's brought his friends in and they're trying to understand what this suffering means, what God is saying. And finally at the end of it, God speaks in, verse, in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> Who's talking about stuff they don't know about? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and, and you make it known to me. And then he goes on. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Go ahead. Answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God is sovereign. We see it in all of creation. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, you who are so smart. Or who stretched a line upon it? All of creation. Who set it square? Who did that? Come on, tell me. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? He goes on to describe it. I, I love it, verse 22. Look at this. You know, uh, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Who does that? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Go to verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Now obviously it's, 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 it's a language that just pictures these things for us. But I, I love the thought in verse, um, verse 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Can you call, look forth the lightning and have the lightning come to you and say, here we are, we're ready to do what you ask? Can you do that, Job? Job, you just, you just spent 37 chapters trying to figure this all out and you've got all the answers, so you just tell me. Can you, call the, can you call the lightning forward and have it stand in attention at you? I don't think so. 
And so I wonder if the disciples, when they saw Jesus calm the wind and the waves, if they didn't think about the suffering of Job and the response of God and realize that only God has authority over, over nature. Only God can call the lightning bolts and have them come and stand at attention. They would have seen God as gracious. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. The psalmist stood amazed at God's graciousness through the lens of creation. Look at this, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, the psalmist looked. I, I remember um, one man was telling me the story about a moment of clarity for him when, when um, he was at a lake in Minnesota and the owner of the resort took him out on the dock and had him and some others lay down on the dock and the, the stars were out and it was, there was no light pollution. It was just the stars you could reach out and touch him, he said. And he looked out at the stars and the, and the owner of the resort who had brought them out there began to tell them about the wonders of creation and the God of creation. And he said, I want you just to, to look at the stars and I want you just to meditate on who God is. And so they got lost in all of that, according to my friend who was telling me this story. They got lost in just staring at the stars. And finally, when they, when they kind of looked around, the owner of the resort was gone. He just left them to look and stare. The psalmist did the same thing. The psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and he comes to a point of grace. He comes to a point where he says, who am I in all of this? in all of your creation, and that's just what we can see. We only see a minuscule part of all of creation. That's just what we can see. And in the middle of that, there's this, as has as been called the pale blue dot, this little planet called Earth, in the middle of all of creation. And on the, on the pale blue dot is, this, is, is a guy who's standing there, a man and a woman, and who are you, God of all creation, who sits over all of the heavens, all of the stars, all of your handiwork is there, visible for us to see, and yet you can see us. And you care for us. And you care for my concerns, and you care for my needs, you care for my circumstances, you care for everything, and you care enough to put a plan in motion to make sure that I come and I work out your plan in my life and you will see me through. How is it, God? The psalmist looks at all of this, and he, he wonders, and he just says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And I wonder if the, if, the, if the disciples standing in the boat with not a whisper of wind on the water, the water has gone completely dead, and I wonder if they sat there and looked at Jesus, who was now trying to go back to sleep, and I wonder if that thought didn't go through their mind and say, who is this man? that can calm the wind and the waves and the sea. And then the other thing that I wonder if, that went through their minds was that God is judge. God is the judge. In the history of the people of Israel, God often intervened on their behalf as judge. And his, 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 ruler, his, his, his rule was seen in his activities as he defended his people of Israel. I, if, I think about Jericho and the falling of the walls, 
how the walls fell from the city when God said they would. Maybe he brought an earthquake. I don't know how he did it. That's the, that's the scientific explanation he brought it. But he brought it right at that moment. God used nature to have the walls of Jericho crash down. But I'm struck with another story. If you turn with me to Joshua chapter 10, if you would. Turn with me. Joshua chapter 10. Now this is a great story where the Amorites have come up, up against the, the people of Israel and God has said he will destroy them and he's, he's given his confidence to the people of Israel. Look at verse 8. Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Do not fear. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly. He marched all night from Gilgal. So he marched all night with his army, and all of a sudden, there's the battle. There's the, bat the enemy right in front of him. So these men are exhausted. They've marched all night. Now they're tired. They're exhausted. And they face the enemy right then and there. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and, and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel who killed them with the sword. See what God did with nature? God is their defender. God is the judge. At that time, the Josh Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Do, do you get what's happening in the story? Joshua said, we need more time to, to, to run after our enemy here. And so Lord, would you make the sun and the moon stop in the sky? Who does that? God does. So the people of, the, of, of Israel, the disciples standing in the back of the boat would have seen God as judge and they would have seen Jesus in that role if he can rule over, he can rule over nature. I was going to give an example of Dunkirk. Have you seen the movie Dunkirk? I, th I think I'll pass by it, but I'll just draw your attention to it. Um, Dunkirk is, is an amazing story from World War II where the, I won't pass by it. Let me, let me throw it out there real quick. The British Army and their allies were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk, and um, there was no escape. It was the sea, and it was the German Army. They were trapped in the middle. Over, over 300,000 soldiers trapped on the beaches. For some reason, Hitler stopped his, his march towards the enemy. And for some reason, the weather got terrible and grounded the Luftwaffe Air Force, the Air, Air Command of the German Army. So for two or three days, I don't remember the exact number, I think three days, they had com the Air Force was grounded, Hitler stopped marching, and it gave all these soldiers an opportunity to run down to the beach and to gather down there. At the same time, uh, uh, a flotilla of civilian boats came across the channel and plucked all of those men 
Over 300,000 men plucked him off of the beaches, took him back to safety in England. The amazing part of that story is that the seas were calm. The English Channel is never calm from what I understand. But on that day, the sea was calm. Isn't it amazing? And so Hitler fired up his machine and he started after the, the soldiers who were trapped on, on the beaches of Dunkirk and he, he knew he had them. They, he, Churchill was already preparing his speech to tell the people of England we have lost a third of our army. Or maybe more. I don't remember what the statistic was. King George VI in the meantime had called for a day of prayer. And they say that the people of England gathered in the churches. There were lines coming out of the churches of people trying to get in to call for a day of prayer on behalf of their soldiers. Do you think it's coincidental that he called for a day of prayer and all of that nature came together so that they could make an escape? I don't think so. That's the Lord who calmed the wind and the waves and the sea. So let me ask you this morning. What's your moment of clarity? We know that Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves and the sea, over all of nature, and therefore Jesus has authority over all circumstances. There is nothing that is beyond his authority, beyond his reach, beyond his control. Let me ask you this. When was the moment of clarity for you? When was it that you stood in the, in the back of the boat? When was it you stood in your circumstances and said, oh my goodness, this is God. You see, that's, I think that's why Matthew put the, the, the story in the gospel, in the gospel narrative, because he wants us to understand that God, Jesus, has control over all of our circumstances. There is nothing beyond his control. There's nothing you're facing today. There's no storm that you're facing today that Jesus doesn't have control over. But in the midst of that, I believe that in, in, in those circumstances, there's a moment when God, God taps us on the shoulder. And he might say, where's your faith? And he might say, I am God. And I've got this. I've got this. Will you trust me? Now, it wasn't in this moment. It was a little later on for the disciples. But they had to wrestle with that question. Who is this man? And I believe that God comes to each of us and he brings, he taps us on the shoulder, each one of us, and he says, I'm here. I am the Lord. I am the Lord of hosts. And I am your Redeemer. Will you heed my voice? Will you call out my name? Will you come to me? And I believe that's the moment of clarity that we all need to respond with, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe. See, we often wonder why my life just keeps going around in these cycles and cycles and cycles and cycles. And, but the fact is, we've, we've come to those moments of clarity, and maybe there's multiple moments of clarity. We've come to those places, and we've been able to ignore God. We've been able to just do this. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. But God is there saying, where's your faith? Come to me, and I will calm the storm. I will make the seas quiet. And I believe that he will work out his good and perfect plan in us if we allow him to do it. He will make a way. A way that we don't even understand as we sit here. So I believe each one of us needs to take an assessment. Has the Lord brought that moment of clarity to you and you've avoided it? Has the Lord brought that moment of clarity to you? Maybe it's this morning 
Maybe you're realizing, yes, God's been speaking to me. Yes, I need to say yes to Jesus. So what did the disciples do in that moment of clarity? Well, I think they had to see God for who he is. We need to, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 when he came into the presence of the Lord, you need to fall on your knees and you need to say, you are God. No asterisk, no period, no buts, no nothing. You are the Lord. You are the Lord of hosts. And then we also need to take an assessment and find out who we are in the midst of that. First of all, I'm a sinner. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a a a people of unclean lips. I need to understand my position before this holy God, this Lord of hosts, who is over all. And then I believe we also need to come to the place we need to let the Holy Spirit minister to us. We need to come to a place where we are understanding that we are children of God. You are a child of God. You are a child of the one who calmed the wind and the waves and the sea. You are, the one who has a, you are a child of the one who has authority over all of, the, all of creation. He's asking you simply today, follow me. Follow me. Amen. Lord, thank you for this, this illustration in your word, this event that happened in the lives of the disciples that we might see who you are and the authority that you have, the absolute authority that you have over all things. And we are like the disciples in, in so many ways, too many ways, and our default mode is where is God? But Lord Jesus, as, as we take these next steps forward, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not have that as our default, but have faith as our default. And to be able to look at you and say, Lord, I don't understand these circumstances. Lord, I don't, don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, but I do know that you are Lord and I will follow after you. May that be our testimony this week. May, Lord, your, may, your, may your conviction pour down on us this week, and may your grace pour down on us as well. May we walk in the freedom that comes from you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.